Now there is a handout. If you brought your handout from last week, it's the same handout with uh, the new improved version. I mean, so there's just some slight changes. I added more texts uh, for the Christological purposes. I put in all of the texts and references and other places in the Old Testament or in the New Testament where those things are found and then slightly changed the outline on the back, but that'll come up, come out as we work through the material. If you need, anybody need a copy, you want to raise your hand if you didn't bring your copy from last week or you would like the updated version. And if we run out of updated versions, I can send you a copy or print another copy for you. All right? Well, so we've already looked at the introductory material on side one of your, your outline. The author, Zechariah the prophet, the time which he wrote was the time in which the uh, temple was to be rebuilt. The people have come back from captivity. They're rebuilding. They've stopped rebuilding. God sends two preachers, Haggai and Zechariah, to stir them up uh, to continue the work. And so he writes in order to remind the people of what it was like in the past and how the forefathers did not listen to the prophets, but the word of God was certain and came to pass and urges them to continue on with the work. And so now we come uh, to the outline of the text. We've looked already at the opening sermon, which is a call to repent in chapter 1, verses 1 through 6. And then we looked at the eight night visions. I would like to return to these eight night visions for just a brief overview uh, and highlight some lessons. And also to try to simplify some of the things that are there. Uh, again, as I said, one of the few things that the commentaries and all of the Old Testament introductions that I read, and I saw it again and again uh, this past week when I was studying, is that the one thing you can be sure of in Zechariah is it's one of the most difficult books of the Old Testament. And just when you think you've grasped what the picture means, then they say, well, but the Hebrew actually could mean three different things. And you go, okay, so I think I've got it now, but now I'd have to look into the Hebrew. So it, there are a lot of complex things. And so we want to highlight, I want to highlight for you the things that are clear, right? As we heard many a time from this pulpit, this much is clear. Whatever else we might not get from this, what can we get from these night visions? Now, one commentator mentioned that they were all given in one night. And that's a possibility. There's nothing to indicate that there's a time frame. Another said, uh, somebody mentioned that they had read, well, he said it was a week, uh, over a week. Well, it may have been over a week, one every night. Uh, there's no time period given. It's just given one after the other. And however long it took to come to Zechariah, it comes to us as a whole. And we're to understand, I believe, in, in that way. So the first vision is the four horsemen behind the angel of the Lord. And they're Different colors on different horses and different ways those colors are understood. But basically what we have is a heavenly reconnaissance mission. They go out on patrol and they come back to, to report on what they have seen. And what is clear from this is what follows in the declaration is that God wants them to remember, even though the, the nations around you are at peace and you're still in captivity... I haven't lost sight of you, and I haven't changed my heart toward you. Notice verse 14 of chapter 1. 
The angel who was speaking with me said to me, proclaim, saying, here's the message he wants Zechariah to tell the people in light of this vision. Thus says Yahweh of hosts, I am exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and Zion, but I am very angry with the nations who are at ease. And so the God's heart is still the same. He hasn't lost sight of his people in all of this. And just as a comment was mentioned, um, I, I, you'll hear me frequently using the name Yahweh. And the reason I use Yahweh is it's the, uh, one of the ways that the name of God is translated in the Old Testament. If you look at, at your Bibles, you'll see that the book of uh, Zechariah has the dominant uh, way that God is addressed is the Lord, lower case, lower caps, or small caps, right? Capital L, Small case, O-R-D, excuse me, small, small case, lower case caps, all caps, small caps, L-O-R-D, right? And that's the word for Yahweh or Y-H-V-H. And so I'm using Yahweh. It's the new term that everybody seems to be really uh, frequently using. Uh, it's found in some translations there. I might slip at times and say Jehovah. And when I talk about the day of the Lord, I won't use the word Yahweh very often because we're so used to that phrase the day of the Lord, and it's an important phrase that we need to understand, but it could also be called the day of Yahweh, right? So that's why I'm using Yahweh. There's two different words that are translated Lord in our Old Testament. Uh, if it's just Lord, L-O-R-D, then that's for master or sir. If it's L-O-R-D, small caps, then that is the name for Yahweh. And so that's what I'm using. So I'm using that frequently as I read through, I'm translating that in my own mind and reading it aloud. So there you have it. So this divine proclamation comes along and says, this heavenly reconnaissance, God is aware of all that's going on. Vision number two, which follows in verses 18 to 21 of chapter one, is the four horns that scatter and the four terrifying craftsmen who uh, terrify and judge the four horns. And here, the, the main point in this is whether you, however you're going to understand the four horns and however you're going to understand the four craftsmen. And there's lots of ideas as to what those, four, those eight things mean. The bottom line is, God says, I'm the one who judged you by these four horns, and I'm the one who will judge the four horns by my means. I am a righteous judge. I've judged my people in righteousness. I will judge their enemies in righteousness. That's the second vision. So I see all that's going on. I'm not unaware, haven't changed my heart. And I am going to deal with those who have dealt harshly with you. Vision number three, chapter two, verses one through five. A heavenly encouragement where we have this victorious city, a wall, a Jerusalem without fire. There's, a, there's an angel. He's got a measuring stick in his line. He's supposed to go out and measure, but he stopped. And basically, uh, he stopped because there's nothing to measure. There's no walls. It's just too big. It's going to be full of people and of cattle. It's going to prosper amazingly. And so therefore, divine summons follows in verses 6 to 13, where he says, if this is what Jerusalem is supposed to be like, and I will be all the glory in that city, then come back from Babylon. Return to the land. And so it's a call to his people. He gives the double precept, flee and escape. He redistributes the plunder. He says, those who plunder you, they will become your plunder. And then I will be in your midst. 
and it will be a diverse people. Chapter 2, verse 11a. It will be a multinational people that will be my people in my city. And you will once again be my chosen ones. And so this is, this is what uh, the heavenly encouragement that comes uh, to the people of God. Again, to encourage them to continue to build. Build the temple because this place is going to be huge. It's going to be amazing what God is going to do in adding people to, this, to, my, to God's people. And then vision number four, chapter three, verses one through seven, a heavenly mediator. This is the, the clean clothes for Joshua, the high priest. We find ourselves in the court of heaven. And the reality of it is, is that God is saying, I want you to understand, in verses 8 through 10, a recommissioning of, uh, of Joshua and the priests, I want you to understand there is going to be a high priest. You will be able to draw near to me. There will be a priesthood that you can know that your sins are being dealt with and that you have access to the God of heaven. When he then in, in verses 8 through 10, if you'll just look at those briefly in chapter 3, you'll notice that there's this statement about a stone and these other men who are sitting there. And he says, you know, what I want you to understand is that what I've just done for Joshua and whatever this stone with seven eyes is and whoever else these priests are who are standing with Joshua, he says they are but a symbol. They are primarily a symbol of somebody called the branch. Now, I said that that was netzer, and I do, that was the wrong Hebrew word there, which is important because it's actually a word, the word that is used here is a word that is used several times in Jeremiah, in particular, to refer to my branch, David. It's not the word used in Isaiah, but it is the word used in Jeremiah. But the fact of the matter is, he says, I am going to establish this one called the branch, and it's going to be for blessing and for safety. But notice verse 9. He says the first thing that's going to accompany this branch, this one great priest called the branch, in verse 9, it says that sin will be removed in one day. For behold, the stone that I have set before Joshua, on one stone are seven eyes. Behold, I will engrave an inscription on it, declares Yahweh of hosts. I will remove the iniquity of that land in one day. It will not be sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice, day after day, week after week, month after month, as it was under the old covenant. There will be one sacrifice offered on one day that will pay the sin, for the sins. Iniquity will be removed in one day. And then the other result in verse 10 is that it will be a time of blessing and peace for everyone will invite his neighbor to sit under his vine and under his fig tree. Everybody's going to have their own place with their own rich supplies of the best of the things. And as though they say, come on over, let's enjoy what each of us has been given in this rich blessing. And in particular, this imagery of fig tree and vine speaks of a time of safety. In 1 Kings chapter 4, verse 25, we read this. So Judah and Israel lived in safety, every man under his vine and his fig tree, from Dan to Beersheba, all the days of Solomon. And we read of this in Micah. 
And he will judge between many peoples and render decisions for mighty distant nations. Then they will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations will not lift up sword against nation and never will they train for war. Each of them will sit under his vine and under his fig tree with no one to make them afraid for the mouth of Yahweh of hosts has spoken. So he says, when this one called the branch, this one great high priest, comes and takes his place, sins will be forgiven, and there will be safety and security and the richest of blessings found in him. Now we know that's in part found in this life through faith in Jesus Christ. But it's also a picture of what will one day be fully realized when Christ returns. And so that's the second picture that we have there in, uh, or the, the, the fourth picture we have there, Yahweh, the heavenly mediator, vision four. But then it brings us to vision number five in chapter four, vision number five in chapter four, along with a divine encouragement. And here we saw the sevenfold lampstand with the olive trees standing by. And again, lots and lots of interpretations. Who are the two branches? Who is, is this talking about the menorah that was built for the temple or isn't it? Are the differences so significant or are they just advanced? The point is very obvious as to what he's trying to, to, to make out of this, and that is, Zerubbabel, you're going to have everything you need to complete your task. Chapter 4, verse 7. What are you, O great mountain, before Zerubbabel? You will become a plain, and he will bring forth the top stone with shouts of grace, grace to it. As we saw in verse 6, it's not by might nor by power, but by my spirit. The spirit is going to supply Zerubbabel all that he needs by his grace to complete the task that God has called him to do. And this is the point of whatever else we can get out of this and however much you want to study out the images and seek through them. The bottom line is this. God will provide everything necessary for you, as he did for Zerubbabel as we saw from some of those New Testament texts, to accomplish the work God has given you to do in the work of building the temple of God. Vision number six, we saw this effective judgment. Here's the flying scroll. The scroll speaks of this, the, the judgment, the curse that comes and the law of God, these two laws for the 10 laws and, and a curse which is going to be big enough to cover the entire land and yet it's going to land on the house of those who have violated the law of God. It's going to remain in their house until it's consumed their house. Now that's a picture of God's curse coming to those who will not repent, whose sins are not dealt with. And then he goes on further. He says, Yahweh is going to purge the sin. He says, this is going to be purged out. It's going to purge out all those who, who violate the law of God. But then he goes on and says, that, then there's, uh, as one man said, a basket case. And this, this basket that's there and the lid opens up and, and what's revealed is wickedness. And I was indebted to my friend Andrew Kerr uh, on this particular point, for he had three points. He said, God reveals sin. He shows the wickedness. He actually showed it as well with the scroll. God restrains sin. He threw her down, and he put a lead weight on top of it. And then God is going to remove sin. It's removed, and it's put off in Shinar. 
So it's removed from God's people. And we can think of passages like Romans 8, where there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Who can bring a charge against God's elect? Christ Jesus is the one who died, yes, rather, who was raised. And so there's no longer that sin. It's been taken away from God's people, that judgment, that guilt that they're, they're worthy of. And I could go into all the words that are here, but that's basically what we have, is the guilt has been removed. It's been taken away. But it's going to be made something of a place of worship, a temple in Shinar, because those who do not believe in God, whose sins are not forgiven in Christ, guess what? They worship their sins, and they will be judged for it. And then vision number eight, the final vision, the four chariots. And again, we find here uh, there's four chariots. They're also the same as they're, well, they're described in verse five as being drawn by red horses, black horses, white horses, and strong dappled horses. They're all going forth. They're coming from these two mountains. What are these two bronze mountains? Well, it's before the Lord is the, the way that it's described later. These chariots go out from before the Lord. So these are God's chariots that are being sent out. And they're going out in the two to the north and one to the south, and one's not even told where it goes. We don't know where the red horse, the, the red horse drawn chariot is going. But the ones that go to the north are taking God's spirit there to, for God to accomplish his work there. If you have the New American Standard, it says uh, he's going to pour out his, his, appease his wrath, but I don't know why they came up with that translation. Well, I do know, but that's not a very good translation. A better translation is he. He's going to rest his spirit there and accomplish his spirit's work in the north. The north being, of course, the place where Assyria was, where Babylon was, where Medo-Persia was. So God's going to accomplish his purposes there, both to deal with, his, with the sins of his people and with the sins of the nations. And then he says all this is going to take place because God is king. You see, he's sending out these chariots. He's the he's the. Yahweh of hosts, he's the God of the armies, he's the chief commander, commander-in-chief of, of all of the hosts of heaven, of all the armies of heaven. But who's going to rule over these? Well, Joshua the high priest is going to get a crown, as we read in verses 9 to 15, as he's going to reign. So if you have your outline there, just notice with me, and I'll just, I want to put something here. If you have the old version, you don't have this. If you have the new version, it's got these written in. So the heavenly vision, we see... Yahweh patrols the earth and he sees all. Vision number two, Yahweh protects his people. Vision number three, Yahweh will prosper his people. Yahweh number four, Yahweh will pardon his people. Yeah, vision number five, Yahweh provides for his work. Vision number six, Yahweh purges sin. Vision number seven, Yahweh removes sin. Vision number eight, Yahweh rules over all. Now that's a pretty hefty picture to say, if this is who we're serving, then build. What an encouragement to actually get about the work of building the church. And let me just say that the, the New Testament parallel here is not the building we're sitting in. He's not saying, therefore, make sure you've got a really nice building to meet in. Now, granted, the building's important, our testimony is reflected here, the way the, the property is kept is reflective of this, but the bottom line is not, let's build a big building with a nice place to sit. It's let's see living stones being added to the living church where spiritual sacrifices can be offered in Jesus' name 
to the heaven, the God of heaven. And so what are we doing to build the church of Jesus Christ? These are encouragements to get about the work. Brethren, we're part of something much bigger than just a small group here in Montville. God's calling people from every kindred, tribe, and tongue and building his church throughout the, the world. And it's our responsibility to give ourselves to that task in various ways. Whether it's praying for missionaries, supporting missionaries financially, whether it's interacting with your neighbor and bringing the gospel to them. You know, it's kind of like maybe, I might put it this way, it's having your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. That's our work. Are we about the work? Do you have a heart for the work? Do you have a desire for the work? It's part of what Zechariah is teaching us. Well, let's move on then to section three, and you'll see the outline gets much simpler. In section three, we have two sermons, two sermons from Yahweh. Yahweh gives a couple of sermons to his servant, Zechariah, that he wants him to preach. Now, the section here, you'll, you'll often read that these are two sermons about fasting, and that's because in verse three of chapter seven, you'll notice, people come to the priests and to the prophets saying, shall I weep in the fifth month and abstain as I have done for many years? So they've come asking, and then verse 5 tells it, what, weeping in what way? It says, say to all the people of the land and to the priests, when you fasted and mourned in the fifth and seventh months of those 70 years. So you've been, there were obviously some fasts. Look at chapter 8, and here's where the other bookend comes in, chapter 8 and verse 19. Thus says Yahweh of hosts, the fast of the fourth and the fast of the fifth and the fast of the seventh and the fast of the tenth month will become joy. So he says, okay, there were these four fast periods that were taking place. And these four fasts, these four dates align most likely with four significant, horrifying events in the life of the people of Israel. Now, if you look at your notes, it speaks of the first sermon I've entitled, Rebuke for Empty Fasting. The question comes, should we continue fasting? During this 70 years of captivity, we have been fasting. We have called for four different fasts, times when we weep, when we're mourning over what has happened. And in chapter 7 and verse 5, it was also, in some measure, the question is, was it being done to seek God? Because fasting in the Old Testament is never required of the people of God. You cannot find a verse that says you, they must fast on any particular occasion. One possible exception is the Day of Atonement when it says you are to afflict yourselves. And that may be a reference to fasting on the one day out of the year in keeping with that great atonement, that Day of Atonement when those uh, two goats were, were dealt with to deal with the sins of the people. Otherwise, there's no commands that say you must fast. But during this time of captivity, they were fasting on these four occasions. The fourth month was the month in which Nebuchadnezzar conquered Jerusalem. In the fifth month of one of the years, destruction of Jerusalem and the temple happened by the Babylonians. In the seventh month, 
there was the murder of Gedaliah, who had been appointed to rule over the people. During that time where some were being taken captive, there was Gedaliah was set up as, as a ruler for a time, and, and he was murdered. And then the tenth month marks the beginning of the siege on Jerusalem. And so the people evidently had decided that during these time, this time of captivity, when they remembered these horrifying events, the armies coming against Jerusalem, Jerusalem being captured, Jerusalem being burned, the temple being ransacked, and Gedaliah, who was the last great hope maybe for some, was murdered. This is what they, th they believe that these four fasts were associated with. They were fasting during those times. And that's not a bad thing that they would fast during those times. But now the question is, we're building the temple again. Should we keep fasting? Should we take these practices that were set up during this time and make them standing rules for the church? Standing rules for the people of God. This good thing. Well, Yahweh challenges them through the prophet Zechariah. Notice what it says in verses 5 and 6. Here's the question, chapter 7, verses 5 and 6. Say to all the people of the land and to the priests, those who came asking these questions, when you fasted and mourned in the fifth and the seventh months, these 70 years, was it actually for me that you fasted? When you eat and drink, do you not eat for yourselves and do you not drink for yourselves? And so there seems to be a challenge here to their practice of fasting, similar to what we read of in Isaiah chapter 58. When they fasted, thinking they would earn God's favor because of their religious activity, all the while they were breaking God's law on the Sabbath, even to the point of getting in fistfights or having their servants out uh, working on that day while they were doing their religious thing so that they could keep earning money. And they couldn't wait for the Lord's day to get over and, and deal with the poor, help the, those who were afflicted. Well, we haven't got time for that. We're too busy making money. Well, this was, he's saying, those are fasts that I call for. The fast that I call for, if you're going to fast in a way that's pleasing to God, it's to humble yourself and restrict yourself so as to seek the face of God for his glory and his honor. Not because you earn some sort of credit by doing it. It's to show how earnest you are in the prayers that you're offering. How pained you are in the mourning you're going through. But that's not what they were doing, so he challenges it. And then in secondly, in verses 7 to 14, he goes on in his answer to their question, and he says, you need to learn from the past. Listen to what the Lord says through Zechariah. Are not these the words of Yahweh proclaimed by the former prophets when Jerusalem was inhabited and prosperous along with the cities around it, the Negev and the foothills were inhabited? Then the word of Yahweh came to Zechariah saying, thus says Yahweh of hosts, Excuse me. Thus has Yahweh of hosts said, dispense true justice and practice kindness and compassion each to his brother and do not oppress the widow or the orphan, the stranger or the poor, and do not devise evil in your hearts against one another. He says, this is what was said in days past. And this sounds a lot like Amos. It sounds a lot like Habakkuk. 
It sounds a lot like the other prophets. It sounds a lot like what Samuel said to Saul. To obey is better than what? Sacrifice. Sacrifice being the religious activity. To obey is better than just to engage in empty religious activity with a life that's, that's contrary to what you're doing in, in, in your worship. He goes on. What was their response when they heard this message? They refused to pay attention, turned a stubborn shoulder, stopped their ears from hearing. They made their hearts like flint so that they could not hear the law and the words which Yahweh of hosts had sent by his spirit through his, the former prophets. Therefore, great wrath came from Yahweh of hosts. And just as he called and they would not listen, so they called and I would not listen. I called to them, they wouldn't listen. So when they called to me in their so-called fasts, I didn't listen. But I scattered them. You see what he's saying? He says, you're asking about fasts. But were you really fasting for the right reasons? You see, your people of old, remember the lessons of the people of old. They were told to obey and they didn't. They went about their fast. They went about their religious activities, but they did not obey my law. What happened to them? It's just what he said in the beginning of the book. They didn't listen to the former prophets and God's judgment came upon them and scattered them. This, this rebuke of hypocrisy is, is something which ought to shake every single one of us and constantly have us thinking and pleading with God that we would not engage in religious activity in empty, formalistic ways. And that we would not replace what God says we should do with what man thinks we should do. Now, you know, I think it's a good thing that we sing four hymns in the morning and evening service. I think that's a good thing. But if I can put it this way, that's not a God thing. God says we're to sing the word, we're to pray the word, we're to preach the word, we're to read the word, we're to see the word in the ordinances. But he doesn't say that you have to sing it four times. So the God thing is we must sing. If I can put it that way, God's commandment. You see what they were doing is they were saying they took a good thing that they had developed in this time of grief and pain, and they were trying to make it. They're asking, should this be a God thing? Should we keep doing this? When in fact, they've missed the whole point. <laughs> what are you weeping? You're weeping because the temple was destroyed? Well, wait a minute. You're supposed to be building the temple. And I've promised that the temple will be built. Zerubbabel will finish the task. And that's what he's going to tell them, right? When you come back to chapter 8 and verse 19 about the fast. Verse 19, he says, For thus says Yahweh of hosts, the fast of the fourth and the fast of the fifth and the fast of the seventh and the fast of the tenth months will become joy, gladness, and cheerful feasts for the house of, Yah of Judah. So love, truth, and peace. He says, you shouldn't be fasting. You should be feasting. God has returned you to the land. God may have judged you, but now he's restored you. The temple may have been burnt, but now it's being built. Rejoice. Oh, but it's not what it once was, and we're so discouraged. There's so much opposition. He said, stop that. 
Rejoice at what God is doing. Be glad in what the Lord is doing. Here's the answer. It says, there's this rebuke against this false and empty hypocrisy. But then the second half, actually chapter 8, is if you're going to read the book of Zechariah, don't get lost in chapters 1 through 6 like I did. <laughs> Whoa, and you're going round and round and round and over and over and over, picking out all that. Don't get lost there. Read that, move on. Read chapter 7, okay, hypocrisy, yeah, we don't want that. But read chapter 8. If you read any chapter, read chapter 8. Look at what chapter 8 says. It speaks of spiritual renewal and a promise of restoration. Here's the second promise. He says, then, now follow along in your copy of God's word, because this is just too much to pass over. I'm going to read this whole chapter. And I'm going to highlight some things as we go. Because this is just an amazing chapter. Then the word of Yahweh of hosts came, saying... Thus says Yahweh of hosts, I am exceedingly jealous for Zion. Yes, with great wrath, I am jealous for her. Wrath against the nations, blessing for her. Thus says Yahweh, I will return to Zion. I will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. Then Jerusalem will be called the city of truth and the mountain of Yahweh of hosts will be called the holy mountain. There's a promise of his disposition toward his city. And then there's all these promises with regard to the city. He is going to dwell in their midst. The city is going to be the city of truth. The mountain that is called holy now. Verse 4. Thus says Yahweh of hosts, old men and old women will again sit in the streets of Jerusalem, each man with his staff in his hand because of age. And the streets in the city will be filled with boys and girls playing in the streets. I think he read Isaiah. And got a picture of what God was going to do and the peace and the longevity and prosperity that's going to come. And the streets of the city will be filled. Verse 6, thus says Yahweh of hosts, if it is too difficult in the sight of the remnant of this people in those days, will it also be too difficult in my sight? There is nothing too difficult for God, he's saying. You think it looks, because you're small. You think it looks difficult for the gospel to spread and fill the earth? Do you think it's difficult that, that this world should be one that is righteous? And filled with those who are righteous and only those who are righteous? Do you think this is too difficult for God to do this? This is not too difficult for God. Verses 7 and 8. Thus says Yahweh of hosts, Behold, I am going to save my people from the land of the east and from the land of the west. And I will bring them back and they will live in the midst of Jerusalem. And they shall be my people and I will be their God in truth. That is in all sincerity. And in the real sense of truth and righteousness. He's trying to get these people to say, look what God is doing. He's going to restore these people. He's going to restore his people. You, his people. And so here's the exhortation. Verse 9. Thus says Yahweh of hosts, let your hands be strong. You who are listening in these days to these words from the mouth of the prophets. Those who spoke in the days that the foundation of the house of Yahweh of hosts was laid to the end of the temple might be built. He says, they're coming to you, speak to you. So work, be strengthened, 
Be encouraged. Verse 10. But for before those days, there was no wage for man or any wage for animal. And for him who went out and came in, there was no peace because of the enemies. And I set all men one against another. This is what it was like. But now I will not treat the remnant of this people as in former days, declares Jehovah of hosts or Yahweh of hosts. For there will be peace for the seed. The vine will yield its fruit. The land will yield its produce. The heavens will give their due. And I will cause the remnant of this people to inherit all these things. These are covenant blessings. They will enjoy the covenant blessings of my, that I've made to my people. They will live in peace and they will enjoy prosperity. Therefore, where, here's the duty, verse 13. It will come about that just as you were a curse among the nations, the house of Judah and the house of Israel, so I will save you that you may become a blessing. Do not fear. Let your hands be strong. For thus says Yahweh of hosts, just as I purposed to do harm to you when your fathers provoked me to wrath, says Yahweh of hosts, I have not relented. So I have again purposed in these days to do good to Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. Do not fear. Don't fear my wrath if you obey. Don't fear your enemies. I'm in charge. Strengthen yourself and do the work. Holiness and righteousness will mark you. Verse 16 and 17. These are the things which you should do. Speak the truth to one another. Judge with truth and judgment for peace in your gates. Also let none of you devise evil in your heart against another. And do not love perjury. For all these are what I hate, declares Yahweh. So it's a call then, having been restored. It's a call to holiness. It's a call to live righteously. And then as we saw, verse 19, your fasting should be turned to festivals. And the inhabitants will come. Verse 21, the inhabitants of one will go to one another saying, let us go at once and entreat the favor of Yahweh and seek Yahweh of hosts. I will also go. They're provoking one another unto love and good deeds. Let's go talk. Let's go ask Yahweh. Let's go worship Yahweh. Let's go do this together. And then notice verse 22. So many peoples and mighty nations will come and seek Yahweh of hosts in Jerusalem and entreat the favor of Yahweh. And it's just the, the picture here all of a sudden changes radically. From all the things that all these pictures, he just gets really plain with them. says, you know what? Look at what God is doing in building his people. Look at what God has promised when he restores his people. He has promised them that nothing is too difficult for him. He has promised them to dwell in their midst. He has promised them peace and prosperity. He has called them to work and to be strong and not to fear. He's called them to holiness and righteousness. He's called them to rejoice and to feast. He's called them to exercise faith by coming to God. And this is what all the nations are going to be part of this. This is far bigger than just Israel. So many peoples and mighty nations will come to seek Yahweh of hosts. Let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. So, brethren, this is, this is meant to encourage us, because we know, in fuller sense, Jesus said, 
I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And Jesus, or Paul said that we are co-laborers with God in this work with the various roles and spheres that God has given us. This promise of restoration, this is bigger than Israel. It's multinational, multi-ethnic, and we are seeing the fulfillment of it in our days. That brings me to the final section, the two burdens, chapters 9 to 14. And the first is chapters 9 through 11, the burden against the nations. And here I'm going to stick pretty closely to my notes. I'll try to, to highlight things that are in the text so that you, I'll tell you what verses I'm looking at so you can follow along there. But there's just, again, a lot to be said in here. Many of the, uh, the, the surveys that I looked at and introductions I looked at uh, gave this whole section a paragraph. They just didn't want to deal with it, I think. But whatever the case, it was, it was not really dealt with very thoroughly. But I want us to look at the burden. First of all, the burden against the nations, chapters 9 through 11. God calls, God comes, Yahweh comes, and he says he has a burden, a, a, a message, a heavy message for the nations, that the nations will be judged. And this region in Syria called Hadrach and Damascus, the capital, speak of this area of Syria. And then there's Tyre and Sidon in verse 2 and verse 3. And then there's the Philistines in verses 5 and 6. He says he's going to judge them. God is going to come. He has judgment against the enemies of the people of God. And he says in verse 8 that in the midst of this, not only will he judge all the nations, but he will also preserve Judah and end their oppression. Verse 8, I will camp around my house because of an army because of him who passes by and returns, and no oppressor will pass over them any more. For now I have seen with my eyes. He's going to go on to talk about the fact that they are going to be blessed, that they're going to be preserved. And so he calls them to rejoice greatly, verse 9, to shout in triumph, verse 9, to behold what God is going to do, Verse 12, to return to the stronghold, that is to find comfort in, in Yahweh. He's going to use Judah and Ephraim to uh, accomplish his purposes. And I'm not going to go into all the comments about Greece there in verse 13. It may very well be that it's a prophecy of what's yet to come. Or it could be that this was uh, included afterwards, but this is uh, the promise that is given. So they're going to be, the enemies are going to be judged. But notice with me right in the middle, verses 9 through 11, because I think you'll recognize some of these words. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming. He is just and endowed with salvation. Humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now, who is that? Who is that? Come on, you can say it. That's okay. It's Jesus. And when was that fulfilled? Yeah, the triumphal entry, right? In Jerusalem. And so, wait a minute. He's always saying here is this defeat of the enemies and this, this victory that you're going to have, this peace and preservation you're going to have is going to come under the rule of one king, the Messiah, this king who is coming 
who is coming with salvation, who is coming meek and lowly and humble, but he's also going to be the place of stronghold that the prisoners can be, where the prisoners can be set free and where they can find comfort. And this is all language right here from the end of the chapter. Yahweh himself will appear over them and his arrow will go forth like lightning. He will blow the trumpet. He will march in the storm on the winds. He's going to defeat his enemies. But then notice verse 16, Yahweh, their God, will save them in that day as the flock of his people. For they are the stones of a crown sparkling in his hand. What? This remnant, this wayward group of people? He says, yeah, they're the ones that are the, are the, are the gems in my crown. That's how he views his people. That's how he sees us. So chapter 10 then follows on that, and where he then goes on to say, Yahweh is going to fight for his people. And I just would say, as you read through chapter 10, a number of things that, that come forth from this is, uh, there's again a statement, reference to Messiah in verse 4. From them, that is from out of uh, the, the, these other shepherds, from them will come the cornerstone, from them the tent peg, from them the bow of battle, from them every ruler of all of them together. And that's, I believe, a reference to the Messiah, that he is going to be the one who's going to fight for his people. Chapter 10, I've, def I've entitled Yahweh will fight, fight for his people. Don't put your trust in these teraphim, these false gods. These false prophets, verse 2. Don't trust in these false shepherds, verse 2. My anger is against them who have not cared for you the way they should have. But instead, I'm going to fight for you. Verse 6, I will strengthen you. I will save you. I will bring them back. I, I've had compassion. I am Yahweh, their God. I will answer them. Verse 8, I will whistle for them and gather them together. I have redeemed them, and they are, will be as numerous as they were before. Verse 9, I scattered them among the peoples. Verse 10, but I will bring them back from the land of Egypt and Assyria. I will bring them into the land of Gilead and Lebanon. He will strike the waves of the sea, and I will strengthen them in Yahweh. God is going to fight for his people. But notice, the people are going to fight too. Verse 5, they will be a mighty, they will be as mighty men. Excuse me, verse 5, 10, 5. They will be as mighty men treading down the enemy in the mire of the streets in the battle, and they will fight. Verse 7, Ephraim will be like a mighty Man, verse nine. They will remember me in far countries, and with and they with their children will live and come back. Verse eleven. They will pass through the sea of distress, and in His name, verse twelve, they will walk. And so you have this wonderful uh, confluence of God's sovereignty and His promises to fight for His people, and the responsibility of His people to fight. And in chapter 11, which ends this first burden, we have the judgment of Israel graphically pictured. He starts off with this picture that seems to be carrying on with the judgment of the nations when he says, Oh, Lebanon, a fire may feed upon your cedars. Oh, the cedars of Lebanon are going to be consumed by fire. The oaks of Bashan, we're moving a little bit further south and into the country north part of Israel. Those oaks will be uh, burned, and then all the way down through the Jordan will be ruined. Oh, wait a minute. 
He's coming back and he says, but wait a minute, you've got to realize I am still the same God that I've always been. And there is judgment that comes for sin. And then in verses 4 to 17, there's this drama, this shepherding drama, where Zechariah is supposed to act like a shepherd. He's commanded to in verse 4. Thus says Yahweh my God, pasture the flock doomed to slaughter. This may very well be still saying, you know what? Israel as a nation is not my final people. And they will suffer judgment. Very likely or very possibly speaking of the Roman invasion. Verse 6 is this horrifying statement of God rejecting his people. His pleasantness will be broken. The covenant, verses 11, verse 10. The brotherhood of north and south will be broken, verse 14. So in the first scene of this shepherding drama in verses 7 to 13, we have a covenant broken, the sheep are abandoned, and the shepherd is sold for 30 pieces of silver. It brings us right up to the Lord Jesus Christ. Which tells us something about, in fact, maybe he's talking about his final rejection of the people of Israel as a nation. Because they finally rejected the Messiah. He rejected them. In scene number two, which begins in verse 14, we have the brotherhood broken, the sheep abused, and the shepherd wounded. And then we have verse chapters 12 to 14, and very quickly, chapter 12 is the day of the Lord, a day of salvation and destruction. There's messianic and gospel mourning when the outpouring of the Spirit comes in chapter 12, verse uh, chapter 12, verse 10 to 14. I will pour out on the house of Jacob, Jake, excuse me, I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication, so they will look on me whom they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son. And that mourning, if it's a gospel mourning, is mourning over, over sin and a repentance of one's sin, which led to the death of the Lord Jesus Christ and the piercing. Or it will be, again, as Revelation uh, chapter uh, 1, verse 7 talks about, all people seeing the one whom they pierced on that last day, and their tears will not be the tears of mourning on that day as much as the tears of terror. But there's this... Again, Messianic reference. Chapter 3 carries on with the day of the Lord, and it's a day of forgiveness. As I said, there's the forgiveness made possible by this fountain, verse 1. There's the purging of all falsehood, idols, and false prophets, exposed and cut off in verses 2 through 6. The true shepherd will appear to shepherd the people who have been scattered, verse 7. But a faithful And a faithful covenant remnant will be preserved by Yahweh, verses 8 and 9. But notice chapter 13 and verse 9, the prominent characteristic of the true people of God. He says, I will answer them. I will say, they are my people. And they will say, Yahweh is my God. And then the final chapter, the great and final day of the Lord, the, the last day, the, the last battle, the great victory, a day when the enemies will have seen well, first of all, seem to have won the day, verses 1 and 2. But a day in which Yahweh will have a great victory, verses 3 through 11. Yahweh will fight. Yahweh will enter in with his earth-shattering presence with all of his saints, verse 4 and 5. 
It's a day of perpetual light, verses 6 and 7. A day only when only one king is standing, Yahweh, verse 9. A day when there is no more curse, verse 11. Now we're talking about the end of the book of Revelation. He says, yeah, this is what we're looking for when God is actually going to accomplish this great victory in the end. A day of Yahweh's great plague on unbelievers, verses 12 to 19. And the final words of the book, it's a, it's a day of holiness. Look at verses 20 and 21 of chapter 14. In that day, there will be inscribed on the bells of the horses, holy to Yahweh. And the cooking pots. This is the normal everyday appliances, the normal everyday tools, the cooking pots in Yahweh's house will be like the bowls before the altar. Every cooking pot in Jerusalem and in Judea will be holy to Yahweh of hosts. And all who sacrifice will come and take them and boil them. And there will no longer be a Canaanite in the house of Yahweh of hosts in that day. Why? Because they'll all be the true people of God. A day of holiness. So many lessons as you read through this book. So many, I hope you've just seen so many gospel parallels. Brethren, when the word of God comes, one of the first and foremost lessons that comes in the beginning and comes in the middle, when the word of God comes to us, let us listen. When it comes with convicting power, repent, endeavor after new obedience. On the great day of the Lord, don't be among those who refused to listen, who were stubborn in their hearts. As we read through this, let us thank God for the gospel that comes to all nations. How many times he talks about all the nations coming and drawing near to God. I can summarize the application from vision one with a phrase from one of our hymns, judge not the Lord by feeble sense. The cloud ye so much dread, right? Is, I can't remember the rest of it at this point, but the fact of the matter is it, it's sweet. We, we look at it and say, ah, oh, he's forgotten me. No, he hasn't forgotten you. It doesn't matter how difficult it is. He has not forgotten you. It doesn't matter how powerful the communists get in America. Did I say that from the pulpit? It won't matter. They will not win. Well, they might win America. Let them have it. This world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. If heaven's not my home, that Lord, what will I do? Do not fear what man has done to you. God will deliver his people. He is, vision three, he is coming. He will prosper and he will protect his people. We can draw near to God because we don't have Joshua, son of Jehozadak. We have Yeshua, Son of God, who is our high priest, that we might enter into the very presence of God. Whenever we desire to do so, we can draw near to God. His grace is sufficient for us. The curse cannot touch you. Sin has been addressed and victory belongs to the Lord. Are those things that are going to encourage you to do the work? I hope so. And as I said earlier, beware of hypocrisy and formalism in religion. Let us work diligently when we see the spiritual renewal, when he has worked a work in your heart, there ought to be a desire to take your hands and whatever my hands can do, I'm going to do it heartily as unto the Lord. Now, maybe you're not called to preach. Maybe you're not called to be a deacon. Maybe you're called to cook. I'm not called to cook for you. <laughs> 
My wife is, right? That's, that's her. So we each taking our role, doing work diligently that which God has called us to do for the people of God. We are to pursue holiness without which no one shall see the Lord. We are to live righteously in this kingdom. We are to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. We are to rejoice in God's salvation and not get stuck in regret and gloom from the difficulties or the past. We are to go to the Lord and entreat his favor and expect great things from God. We are safe in God's care. We need not worry. We need not fear. And brethren, remember this. You are cherished by God. You are gems in the crown of God. However insignificant you might feel yourself to be, God says, you are worth my son coming and dying that you might be one of my children, in my house, for my glory. Remember that you are cherished by God. Beware of prideful rejection of God and his Messiah and his word. And remember there is sovereign, gracious forgiveness with God. Zechariah got it partly right. There is a fountain open for sin and uncleanness. I say partly because there's more to it, right? Because the Bible tells us the blood of Christ cleanses from all sin. So he knew that there was a fountain open, but he didn't know where that blood was going to flow from. And it's coming from the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, that brethren, we can have all of our sins forgiven. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That is a quick run through of just some of the exhortations that can come from Zechariah. May God help us to read it and profit from it to the glory of King Jesus. Let's pray before the lights go out. Father in heaven, thank you so much for your kindness in giving us your word and for giving us your book and giving us faithful pastors. Thank you for Pastor Chansky as he comes in this morning hour to proclaim your word as Pastor Hoffmeyer leads us in worship. We thank you for this privilege. Help us, O God, to engage in this work with all our might for the glory of King Jesus. Help us to hear your word and take it to heart that we might be holy and righteous and glorifying to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.